0: week, and he's going to be reporting next week. But I want to say something else. Um, You know, sometimes the ministry of this church to the university, right next door to us, is not that visible. But yesterday here in this place, Chris Garriott married two young uh, people, Students across the way who came and both of them joined Wallace within the last four years. And it was my privilege to give the members class to both Rachel and to Aaron Zappo, And they were married here. They were part of Wallace. And thank you, Wallace, for what you do for the student. Sometimes when I look at it, I think we're too heavy on student ministry when you look at the uh, way that we're supporting missionaries. But thank God for what we're able to do here. And now let's turn to the uh, text for today. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, that would be Paul, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had they would not have crucified except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for the scriptures. Scriptures of the Old Testament, scriptures of the New Testament, inspired through your spirit, all of them prophets, apostles. We want to understand them. We want to apply them. We want your spirit to be an illuminating spirit, shining the light on our Savior Jesus. So guide my thoughts, guide our hearts and minds into your holy truth. May we go away encouraged that we have been further strengthened in this glorious faith, in which you have called us. In the name of Jesus and for his glory we pray. Amen. Some years ago, not that long ago, I was already a PCA pastor. I was reading, I think not preparing a sermon, just reading from Matthew's gospel, and I came to Matthew 23. This is said in the final week of the Lord's life before his crucifixion. Matthew 23 has seven woes. If you think some of the imprecatory psalms are bad, read Matthew 23. Seven woes on the religious leaders of his day. And I came to this one, verse 20, uh, Matthew 23, verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Philip, then, the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? I read that. And the thought occurred to me, Jesus, you're not being fair. Perhaps they saw the truth of those ancient prophets whose words were subsequently fulfilled. And now they're honoring those prophets. Well, that's pretty bad for a PCA pastor to think that way. It's not. Are there there any nods? What happened? Let me do a little bit of self-diagnosis. Number one, I wasn't actively seeking the Spirit's interpretation. Now, I went there because as soon as that struck me, what I was doing, I asked for help, and help came quickly. I realized that what Jesus was wanting was for these religious leaders to recognize that had they been back there in the time of Isaiah, in the time of Jeremiah, they too, as sinners, would have rebelled against the bad news that God was predicting for Jerusalem and Judah through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, through the other prophets. And Jesus wanted them to say, yes, we would have been like our fathers. We were sinners. We're sinners now. Had we lived back then, we would have been sinners then. And we need a savior. That's what Jesus wanted. He was attacking their pride. Well, I believe the Spirit gave me that. Understanding of what was going on. But why did I go wrong initially? In my self-diagnosis, I'd suggest two things. Number one, I didn't really start with the Spirit, dependence on the Spirit. But number two, and perhaps this is more significant, I wasn't looking at this in terms of the crucified Son of Man. Everything is to be brought into the context of us being saved by the righteous life of of the Son of Man who suffered in our place. And we come humbly admitting our need. And what these Pharisees were not doing was coming in humility. They were instead pumping themselves up and saying, we're different, we're better. They were proud. That's what I believe is going on. Now, it's a rather long introduction. This is my second sermon. Uh, recent, the last time I preached was on Pentecost Sunday. And I chose to preach on the Holy Spirit on Pentecost Sunday. And I preach from Romans chapter 8. I preached on... How every one of us who is a believer is given the Holy Spirit of God in order that we might be freed from the dominion of sin. Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life, the law of the Spirit of life, the Holy Spirit, the principle of the Holy Spirit living in you, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What God has done, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in us in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. The Spirit is given to every one of us in order that we have power over the dominion of sin. We are no longer under the dominion of sin. That's a gift of the Spirit. The Spirit does other things. The Spirit regenerates. Gives us new birth. The Spirit gifts every individual And as a congregation, we'll be voting on whether or not certain people have been gifted to be officers in the church next week. The Spirit grants fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so forth. Galatians 5. The Spirit also teaches us. That was one of the major emphases in Jesus' uh, upper room discourse, the text that was read this morning by Andy from John chapter 14. The Spirit teaches us, and that's where I'm going here with this passage from uh, uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In fact, my key text for you here is verse 12. If you have your scriptures open it, uh, you could look at it. And now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That We might understand the things freely given us by God. We've been given the Spirit so that we can know, so that we can understand what the good things that God has done for us in salvation, so that we can really grasp that. And that's what I want to be talking about. And I'm going to be doing that um, in a... In a threefold way, but before I go there, because of the way that this whole text has been sometimes interpreted, I want to emphasize that this teaching role of the Spirit of God is twofold. On the one hand, he revealed, as Jesus promised, he revealed truth that had not yet been revealed by the Old Testament prophets or by Jesus to his apostles. There was revelation that took place. But there's something else that's going on. This Holy Spirit illumines. He teaches by making us understand. We call it illumination. Enlightening us to understand the revealed truth. Who is the we in verse 12? Now we have received not the Spirit of the Lord. If you read this... uh, commentaries, you will find that some commentators are going to say, oh, that's Paul and the other apostles. Well, I'm not interpreting it that way. Although, in the sense of revelation, yes. But in the sense of illumination, it's you, brothers and sisters, sitting here in this pew, if you've come to Jesus. The Spirit is at work in your hearts, illumining you. One of the things I love to do when I do my membership classes, is look people in the eye and say, are you a sinner? What would most of the people of this world give in response to that question? And you know what I have invariably so far experienced here is people say, yeah, I'm a sinner. Where do they get that idea? I'm a sinner. It's not out of our culture. It's from the Spirit. It's the illumination work of the Holy Spirit that makes them be able to respond immediately with, yes, I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. And we could go on to the second passage, the second membership question. Do you trust Jesus as one who is willing and able to take away your sins? Yes, I do. I trust him. You see, and and so sometimes what I do is I stop and I say to the young person, you know, if you ever get anybody suggesting that you're not really a believer because you haven't had a, a conversion experience, think, where did I get this idea that I'm a sinner? Where did I get this idea that Jesus is my Savior, that I can trust in him? The Spirit gave it to me. I rest in the fact that the Spirit's at work in me. Don't try to convince me that just because I haven't had an experience like you've had or someone else has had, the Spirit's not at work in me. No. The illumination work of the Spirit is granted to all who really, truly come and understand Now I've got three points that I'm going to go over here. Why do we need this teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, number one? Two, how the Spirit's ministry exalts the crucified Son of Man. And three, what the import of the Spirit's work is upon us individually as believers. First, why do we need the Holy Spirit's illumination because of two things. Number one, we're finite. We're not God. Number two, we're sinners. Let's deal with the first one first. We're not God. That's pointed to here in the text. What no In verse nine, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man has imagined, what God has prepared for those who loved him. You know, there's a wonderful story There are lots of wonderful stories in Genesis. It's just a wonderful book of stories. There are three visitors that come to see Abraham. And Abraham is suspicious. that Lot Lot is going to be in trouble because Lot went down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham is right to be suspicious that God has planned judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham is very concerned for perhaps those cities, but certainly for his nephew and nephew's family, Lot. So, Abraham starts to argue with God. You remember the story? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham is rooted in that basic truth. God is righteous. And if ever you wonder about the problems of evil, don't ever forget that basic truth. The judge of all the earth will do right, and Abraham goes there. He's on rock-solid ground there. But how to save Lot, how to save Sodom and Gomorrah? And he says, if you're the judge of all the earth and you will do right, suppose there's 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Will you discover, destroy the whole, both cities for those, uh, including those 50 righteous? And God says, no. And Abraham, you know, he was an Easterner. He bargained. And he went from 50 down to 40. And he went from 40 to 30. And he went from 30 to 20, from 20 to 10, and he stopped. Why did he stop? God didn't stop. How many righteous people does it take to save an entire innumerable multitude that will populate heaven? One. God's going to save an uncounted number, myriads and myriads of those who call upon the name of this God through one righteous man who suffered in their place. Would we have thought of that? Abraham didn't. Would we? Would you? I wouldn't have thought of that. That's what God did. That's what God thought of. Now, this message, in one sense, was hidden. Uh, Paul says here, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. The wisdom of God that he would save an uncounted multitude of people through one righteous man. That was hidden for ages, but it had been in the heart of God before this cosmos was ever created. It had been there, and it had been there for our glory. Look at verse 7, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now why is Paul talking about wisdom here? The context, the larger context here, is this, the Corinthian believers there had been, the church had been planted with an 18-month effort by the Apostle Paul and his, his uh, co-workers. And then he had gone away. And he, uh, as he writes to them, he's now in Ephesus working, where he was there for three uh, for two whole years. But others came And they spoke with more eloquence. And they spoke more sophisticated theology or philosophy, wisdom. And the Corinthian Christians began to be a little suspicious of this man, Pauls, who wasn't preaching with the eloquence that some of these rhetorically trained. Teachers came and used. And they had new stuff to talk about, maybe about geology who knows what else. And what happened? The emphasis on this crucified son of man lost significance. And that's why Paul went there in the beginning of this chapter. He said, when I came to this city of Corinth, whose reputation was well-known, you know, not that far from Athens, part of the Greek world in the ancient world. And they, had, they were commercially successful much more than Athens, but maybe they had intellectual aspirations. Maybe they loved to spend some of their extra cash on visiting philosophers who would teach him stuff. And that spirit invaded the church of Jesus. And they were wanting some of that Uh, to rub off on them even though they had turned to christ and what paul is saying is you've got the real wisdom why are you why are you flirting with this worldly wisdom don't you understand that the spirit has given you the real wisdom and the spirit is at work in you changing you and the spirit came changing you in a way that demonstrated the power of god at work Where did that power come from? Through the preached message of the crucified Son of God. That's how it came. So, this is my first point. Why do we need Holy Spirit illumination? Because we are tempted to go astray seeking the wisdom of this world. That's what my problem was when I was reading Matthew 23. Was it not? Is not fairness one of the... uh, priority, values of our culture? Was I not reflecting that when I said, Jesus, you're not being fair to the Pharisees? Let's face it. We are tempted by the wisdom of this world. We are tempted to make the basic gospel more... uh, it, 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 to move beyond it, rather than to uh, make it our absolutely first starting point, and to rise up out of the uh, the fact that we have uh, salvation through the death of our Savior, a death which was despicable in the eyes of the people of that world, the death of a criminal. It was shameful. And we want to de-emphasize that. And that's what was happening in Corinth. So, we need Holy Spirit illumination to keep us centered on the cross of Christ. And we also need the Holy Spirit to teach us that we actually need a savior. In New Jersey, I had to make regular visits to a urologist who had been in college at Drew University right after World War II where there were a lot of seminary students um, or at least a lot of pastors' kids from the Methodist church. And this Jewish guy who was a drew a Methodist seminary, a Methodist university um, liked to talk theology he used to like the fact that I was showing up because he could talk theology with me Um, it's not that he was a believer in any sense in fact um, towards one of my final visits there he basically said to me you know I don't need a savior. He understood what the Methodist theology was. It drew that Jesus suffered in our place to give his righteousness to us so that we would not be punished. Jesus saves. That was foolishness to him. He had not been illuminated by God to understand that he needed a savior. Unlike some of the young folks that I've interviewed for membership here at Wallace. What's the difference? The Spirit. The Spirit's the difference. Let's go on to the second point. How the Spirit's ministry exalts the cross. What exalts Jesus? Jesus. What gives glory to Jesus Christ? Sinners repenting. Ransom sinners. Saints. Repenting and growing in holiness. That's what exalts Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's ministry. That's what the Holy Spirit does convincing us of our sin. Convicting us of our Sin, convicting us of the sin of not believing in Jesus. It's one thing, of course, to believe that yes, maybe I have not loved my neighbor as I ought to, or as my I've loved God with all my heart and loved my neighbor as myself, but it's another thing to, uh, to go on and to say that I'm a sinner who needs. Salvation. I'm a sinner who needs to be forgiven by God. I'm a sinner because I hesitate to believe in the salvation God offers. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It convinces us that we're wrong not to believe that Jesus is the way to the Father. The Holy Spirit is the one that exalts the gospel of the crucified Savior. One early 20th century uh, theologian, uh, uh, P.T. Forsyth, liked to say that the Holy Spirit and the gospel of the cross were inseparable bedfellows. You take one away, you take away the gospel of the Of the uh, suffering Savior and the Holy Spirit is no longer at home in that place. The Holy Spirit is there at home and the gospel of the suffering Savior, the crucified Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, that will be lifted up. What is Sometimes, uh, sometimes a discussion is, uh, is raised about the degree to which the church is an organization and the degree to which the church is an organism. An organism with a life principle. Or an organization just like a human institution. Uh, uh, but there There's so many other institutions. What sets the church apart? Well, my response to that is the church is both an organization and an organism. The church is clearly an organization because we have to decide when we're going to go to worship, where we're going to go to worship, and what we're going to do when we get there. Those are organizational questions that are are asked. And the Spirit gifts different people in order to enable the organization organization of the church to function well, decently, and in order. So the church is an organization, but the church is more than an organization. The church is an organism. It has a life principle, and that life principle is the Spirit of God. And how do we ensure that that life principle is healthy and remains here? Where the organization never, ever fails to recognize that the foundation that we have is the crucified one, the suffering servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ who died in our place. And the Holy Spirit's ministry is one that takes us back to the, uh, this message of the cross. The tragedy of the Corinthian church, and by the way, if you got time um, this afternoon on July 4th, thank you for coming to church on July 4th. If you get time on July 4th, I encourage you to read what's essentially the second paragraph of the book of First Corinthians. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge even as a testimony of Christ was confirmed among you so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for telling the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless on the day in our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. What a wonderful introduction to what was obviously a vibrant, healthy, growing church. False. They were in deep trouble, but this was still true of them. These wonderful words were still true of them. The danger, the tragedy was, they were trying to move away from the wisdom of the crucified, suffering servant of the Lord into the wisdom of the world. They were trying to do things in the power of human wisdom and not rely on the Spirit. Let me move on to my third point here. What's the impact of the Spirit's work upon the individual believers? What happens when the Spirit comes in reaches into your heart and persuades you. Look at verse 9, uh, 12 again. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, which spirit is there. It came in our education. It came with our, with our connections with everything. It came in our genes. It came as we were born fallen. But we've been given the spirit who is from God. Why? that we might understand that we might know the things freely given to us by God or if you look in verse 7 which to God decreed before the ages for our glory if you have received the Spirit of God you understand that God is intending to glorify you through Jesus through the suffering servant if you've received the, the Spirit of God you've understood that The good things that God is freely doing for you. You've understood that. And what's the result? Well, you're confident. You have a childlike faith. I'm saved. I'm safe. I've got a savior. It's called assurance. There's... Some in this world that will tell you if you have that kind of assurance, child, simple childlike confidence, you're being arrogant. You're being presumptuous. You really don't know what the end result's going to be. No, we know. Not because of anything that we have managed to discover, but because the Spirit has applied into our heart this childlike confidence that what God says, He will do. He will, indeed, give us, through Jesus, forgiveness. He will give us glory, through Jesus. So one of the results of the Holy Spirit's teaching you is that you have this childlike confidence that we call assurance. What next? Humility. Why? Because... We came to this conclusion not in our own strength. We came to this conclusion because we had had outside help. We came to this conclusion because the Holy Spirit had taken the revealed truth. The revealed truth. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life that revealed truth, the spirit now comes and says, oh, all I have to do is believe. I have to take Jesus as he's able to save me, and he's willing to save me. And now I'm safe. I'm free. But this comes in humility. Paul emphasized this in a passage I didn't think that I should lengthen my, uh, my reading uh, of my text, but it's in the first chapter just before what I started reading. I'm going to read it now. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Why are you seeking after this worldly wisdom now? Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that all. When the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts, we're brought low in Humility. And one of the problems of the Corinthian church was they'd forgotten that. And they were proud. But let me conclude with this application. Number one, recognize and appreciate the Spirit's work in your heart life. The Spirit is not just for the Pentecostals. The Spirit is not just for the ancient apostles. The Spirit is for you and me now. Recognize and appreciate it. Number two, seek the Spirit. Hell. Ask for it. Depend upon the Spirit's illumination. I had a professor, one of my favorite professors of uh in college and then he went on to seminary where I went to seminary at the same time. And he used to have these this phrase, he said, the age of inspiration is over, it's now the age of perspiration. Of course, he was teaching us Hebrew and he was em- emphasizing how important it was to study. The age of inspiration is over, the age of perspiration has begun. I'm not saying don't study, I'm not saying don't explore. And investigate uh, pay close attention. What I am saying is do that in the light of the spirit. Number three my closing uh, uh, And uh, number three of four closing application. Expect the spirit to work. I don't know if you've noticed but when I prayed just before I preach I pray pretty regularly say, Holy Spirit, edit my thoughts. Make me forget what I was going to say if you don't want me to say it. I think I got that from reading um, Martin Lowe Jones's uh, Jones's book, The Mid-20th Century London Preacher at Westminster Chapel. In his book, Preaching and Preachers, he emphasized, preachers, prepare. But also ask for the Holy Spirit to be at work when you're preaching. And don't be surprised when the Spirit gives you a new thought. Make use of it. Expect the Spirit to work. And I say that to those who are sitting in the pews. Expect the Spirit to work. The Spirit is sovereign. The word Spirit... Is the word wind or breath something mysterious? We don't know where the wind comes from. Jesus refers to that in his discussions with Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John's gospel. The spirit blows, the wind blows where it wills. This wind is sovereign. We don't have any control over meteorology, over the weather. The wind blows where it wills. The Spirit blows where He will. But ask for that Spirit to work and then don't be surprised when He works in unexpected ways. Finally, remember the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how the Spirit will enable you to profit by His ministry in the context of remembering the suffering servant. Remembering the that we boast not in ourselves, but we boast in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And it's as we do that, that the Spirit is willing to come alongside and be with us. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, you are our Father who loved us from before the world began. And with the Son Spirit you plan things for our glory. How wonderful to know that you are our Father. Lord Jesus, you made us yours by your death you subdued us to yourself by obedience to your father's command you made us sinners to be righteous in your righteousness holy spirit you took all of these wonderful truths and you laid them upon them upon the hearts of your people And now as we sing this hymn to you, third person of the Trinity, gracious Holy Spirit, continue to apply these truths to our hearts. And then bless the sacrament as we look again at the suffering servant of the Lord, our Savior. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.